For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Posse of the People. In this episode, it's me, Diara, Miles, and Kaya talking about the underreported news of the past week, the news that you should know with regard to race, justice, and equity, but you probably don't know from the past week because they weren't big items on the mainstream media. And then I sit down and talk to author and producer Van Lathan Jr. to talk about his new book, Fat, Crazy, and Tired, Tales from the Trenches of Transformation. We talk about Van's journey through authorship, healing, transformation, his work in the media. We've been friends for a while, but I had never talked to him as a author. And I learned a ton. So dope. Hope you'll learn too. Here we go. And the advice for this week is actually from our guest. Hold your light is the advice that he comes on the end. You'll see. You'll hear. You'll listen. But that's the advice for the week. Hold your light. Family. Welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I'm Diara Ballinger. You can find me on the Twitter and Instagram at Diara Ballinger. I'm Miles E. Johnson. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Pharaoh Rapture. I'm Kaya Henderson on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. And this is DeRay at D-E-R-Y on Twitter. So there's lots and lots and lots going on in the world. And it actually was really hard for us to figure out what the banter was going to be for this episode. So... We're going to start with President Biden in Saudi Arabia. Also, he, he was in Israel. I think it was, it's, you know, now that COVID is lifting, a lot of traveling is happening. I guess he's been traveling. He's been doing a lot of things in Europe. But I think this is the first time, like, the Middle East situation has been happening. I mean, I'm going to recuse myself of comment here since I've worked so closely with America's National Security Advisor. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. Jake, you know, you, you, you're doing what you can, man. You're doing what you can. But, um, you know, it's just interesting to see folks' reaction. It's also interesting to see that, again, the Democratic Party is never aligned. And so, you know, Biden's out there doing this thing and you have, you know, Bernie Sanders, other other kind of political leaders on the Democratic side, mostly disagreeing with tactics and, and interactions and saying Biden is not being strong enough, yada, yada, yada. So I think mostly for me, it's just, one, it's just so hard to focus on things that are happening globally, even though I know we absolutely should, just given this country seems to be in absolute disrepair. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see where this foreign policy gets us. I think in terms of the, 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 the smartest legal analysis, smartest political analysis I've seen is actually on the shade room where a sister from I don't know where was talking about how the price of gas now costs more than a, a gallon of daiquiri. So I just feel like okay, the math is mathing. <laughs> that's it. That was, that, the math was mathing for me. I was like, you know what? That is that's crisis to me. So you know, interesting to see y'all <laughs> what y'all what y'all have to say about these going ons. And if you want to talk about some other going ons, let's let's get into that too. I mean, I think it's interesting, right? To me, there's like two big themes in this Biden trip to Saudi. Um, the political, the uh, alleged political purpose 
is to keep Russia on ice and to outmaneuver China by strengthening ties with the Middle East, um, brokering some stuff for Israel and a few other things. But this is, you know, this is some strategery. This is some diplomacy. This is some international relations, right? And that's what we do. And that's who we are. And that is the game that needs to be played. But then there's this deeply personal thing going on, especially, you know, I live in Washington, D.C., and Jamal Khashoggi was a reporter for The Post. And, like, it is pretty undisputed by everybody except the Saudi crown prince that they put a hit out on that cat and just straight up killed him. And, you know, the question for us personally from a human rights perspective is like, uh, can you be our friends if you out killing people like that? Right. And, and so I think for John Q public, it's a deeply tense conundrum because you would like to think as an American citizen that, you know, if some foreign power took you out, that this country would do something about it. And the reality is there is a greater political calculus that has to be made. And sometimes that runs afoul of our values around human rights and safety and that kind of a thing. And so I think this is why it's such a a big thing, right? People are angry about the fact that he fist bumped this cat. And, you know, this is the the dude who ordered the hit is what, you know, by all accounts. And so, you know, um, and there, and, you know, Iran and nuclear weapons and blah, blah, blah. These people are in there talking about serious stuff. And so I, I don't know how to feel about it because, on the one hand, I understand the diplomacy piece. And on the other hand, I deeply, deeply feel the personal thing. Now that I've concluded Ryan Murphy's impeachment, I officially feel like an expert in all things presidential. So I'm speaking of a place of expertise and deep wisdom. <laughs> do tell, do tell. But the one thing that I, <laughs> I think that we forget because of how presidents get the presidency is that the president's not your friend and has more in common with a global war criminal who's a dictator than they do with you. That's just the that's just the that's just the fact of the nature, and I think that sometimes. Ouch. <laughs> And I just think, oh, oh, well, 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 the well, children well. are in cages. The people have the monkey pox. People have the ooh, ooh, ah, ah. Well, I'm not, come on. We gotta, be, like, ooh, ooh, we, ah, ah. we gotta be real about what's going on. But yeah, and I think that sometimes there are these moments of um, symbolism, of fist bumping, um, of, of friendship and friendliness that reminds people that this is not um the presidency is not an acquisition of friendship it's not it's it's an acquisition of power and you'll do whatever it takes to be able to um be able to maintain that and i think yes it could be disturbing but what goes on is disturbing and i think that when you kind of remember that then you see what's happening in this land and power struggles and how can we can get things moving it's like oh this is not about what they ran on to make you vote for them. This is about maintaining um, global power and dominance. Thank you, Ryan Murphy. What I will say is that it's, it is really interesting too, to, to think about Biden's response to the criticism is, you know, fist bump happens. He's talking to the guy who definitely killed the journalist at the Washington Post. And the response is y'all should talk about something that matters. 
Like, I don't want to hear this. Talk about something. And you're like, that's not the good response, right? And the White House, even with even with abortion, sort of dismissing the people online da, 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 as like the, we're not going to be beholden to the activists. And, and you're like, also wrong. That's wrong, right? Public opinion shifts. And the more and more that people realize the scope and the intensity of what the repeal of Roe v. Wade meant that wasn't only abortion, people are going to be pissed. When people like start to realize what that fist bump meant, you know, like even even my aunt who like isn't paying attention to international politics is like, well, they killed the guy and they like it just don't make sense. And your response can't be, you know, talk about something that matters. It's like that dismissiveness is what's gonna get people gonna keep people at home when you're begging them to come to the polls. And that to me is just it's like the party just won't learn. And a reminder why we can't keep electing 90 year olds. Like we just that just we gotta figure out some way to make sure that the presidency is not uh, a cavalcade of the elderly. You said a what about the elderly? A ca- wait, a cavalcade of bars. the elderly. I said, okay, <laughs> MC Duray. Okay, I heard that. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. But but speaking of that, he he did an op-ed in the Washington Post, July 9th, about why he's going to Saudi Arabia. I mean, read through it. It's pretty boring. I've just been scrolling through it. But it's like all of the things. We did this. We did that. We're trying to do this. We're trying to do that in Israel, in Saudi Arabia, blah, blah, blah. I know that there are many who disagree with my decision to travel to Saudi Arabia. My views on human rights are clear and longstanding and fundamental freedoms are always on the agenda when I travel abroad as the, as they will be during this trip, just as they will be in Israel and in the West Bank. Groundbreaking. Womp womp. Yeah. And then even what you were saying, and I think also Biden was obviously, Biden's pretty conservative. <laughs> Like as far as like what the like what new generations want like and he was the bridge between Trump and getting out of Trump. He was not like the star democratic choice of like oh this is what's gonna get all these like like left leaning ideas straight. It was like okay how do we bridge out of this and get people who are rocking in the middle of this new world and this old world, how do we get them to kind of like shift over a little bit so we don't end up with another era of Trump. But this he's 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 a typical very business as usual. <laughs> yeah. But and it's also just like the 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 complexities around the primaries and like you know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, folks that are quote unquote more progressive, what ends up happening is they're so uncompromising on things that they're like, if we can only raise money in this way, we can only do this in this way, we can only partner with these people, we can only do these things, and they end up losing. So I think it's part where we're we're with Biden, yes, because of it's an easier transition to your point, but we're also with Biden because we have a party that is so dysfunctional and so worried about their own. But do you think that like so for so, for instance, the same reason why Trump won't ever, specifically within the presidency after January 6th happened, um, how he would never just say, um, was that, that wasn't January 6th. There's been so many white supremacist attacks. Whenever he said there was good people on, there's so been many. good people on both sides, that one, Charleston, Charlottesville. 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 Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but how he would never just go out and denounce something. Do you think the same thing's happening with the Democratic Party in the sense that, oh, I cannot abandon my base right now because the people who are supporting Warren and um, and Sanders want to see such specific things. And if I actually 
do something that compromises their faith in me, then I might be giving up the little support that I have. Is that what's going on? Just as I think, I think it's the large, I think one, it's, you know, the democratic, (laughs) the democratic party hires the same consultants. They hire the same, I mean, it's the same, the same, the same, the same, the same, right? So I think partly it's like there's a group of folks who are deciding how we run campaigns, right? On the Senate level, on the congressional level, on the national level, they're deciding how we run campaigns. But these are people who actually have no cultural competency whatsoever. Cultural competency in terms of what people want to absorb and how they absorb it, like people that are like living in the real world with others who are diverse, but other cultural competency just in terms of there's so much bias in the Democratic Party that, I mean... Chuck, look at, let's look at Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. Why? How long, how long are you going to do this for? But this is, this is the thing, right? Times have changed. And so our old leadership paradigms don't work. Our old strategies don't work. Our old playbooks don't work. That's right. And the Democratic Party has failed to change with the times. That's right. And so... You know, we're seeing that in droves. David Gergen has a book out um, about, you know, I this is my thing. I've been on this for a while about what kind of country are we if all we have to offer are the old people. And I say that as an emerging older person, but <laughs> but it is a sign of a healthy country when, you know, there are young people who are leading. And this is why y'all DeSantis is very scary. Yep. Um, but but Gergen basically says he goes back to things like the Peace Corps and AmeriCorps and the Tennessee Valley Associ- Association, all of these like national service programs because they cultivate leadership in young people. And many of those young people then went on to become some of our greatest leaders, our, our greatest leaders across the country. Um, and I, I think that this is a huge problem for the Democrats. I mean, just like Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, like come, the average age has to be like uh, 205. Uh, I, I understand how the math works. <laughs> um, it was just a joke. But I, I'm <laughs> but I'm I'm saying like this is where's our, you know, John F. Kennedy was 45 or something when he became president and represented fresh new ideas and new ways of thinking. What, you know, where, where, and, and where is Kaya our... for Barack Obama? Barack Obama had ran his campaign completely outside of the Democratic Party because he was like, that shit don't yep. work. I'm not doing oh, that. Yep. Now it kind of messed us up because now we, you know, the Democratic Party got even weaker. But I think that's that's a real thing. And we've heard stories about this, too where folks have to run as Republicans because the Democrats are so establishment that they can't, you can't even get new blood in there to run. Yeah, I definitely think the part of it's like just like them being traditionalist and institutionalist. That makes sense to me. But also like, I wonder, so like when you, this, I'm connecting like two different ideas, but like when somebody has like an eating disorder, like, and uh, a big part of that is like, um, a lot of people who have eating disorders will also suffer from like body dysmorphia, meaning that what they see is different than what other people are seeing or what's actual reality. I wonder when I think about Nancy Pelosi and, the, and, and even Hillary Clinton and the errors that they ran in or even Bernie Sanders where just the idea of him walking or doing or 
folding a certain way or walking with a certain civil rights leader was seen as radical because of his ideas or Nancy Pelosi um, going from, you know, housewife of five to political leader and speaker of the house. If all these things were happening and that was seen as political, I wonder if there's a little bit of dysmorphia where they actually see themselves as more progressive and more left-leaning than they actually are because they're still remembering a mirror that was reflecting them the radical of their time and not the left of today. That's generous. That's generous. It could also just be retention of power, pure and simple. Ah, Okay. Listen... Miles really was gonna try, and he that was that. Miles, I loved that it. Was nice. It was very. That was, it was nice. A, there was a generosity of spirit there that was, that was beautiful. Very, very kind. <laughs> yeah, I do. I I will say, Miles, in that vein, I think about like one of the reasons why I'm a little light on Obama is I'll tell you, being in those meetings with him, people were real chill on Obama. He could reasonably say people weren't yelling at him, people weren't telling him that he was wrong. Like, I sat in the room, and the oldest civil rights people just said, thank you. They were like, thank you for being here. Da-da-da-da. Like, they were not pressing that man. They were not. And I do think there's something about, like, who are, who is getting in the room with some of these people and just saying, like, this is wrong. Like, this just isn't right. And I, and I think my experience in D.C., and I'm open to being wrong, is that it's a lot of people who, like, don't disagree because that doesn't help their career, so the activists become, like, we become the crazy people being like, that's wrong. That I, but you're like, everybody knew that didn't make sense. Like, everybody in this room knew it didn't make sense. But we're the only people actually saying it out loud. The career people are like, you know, slow tailing it and da 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 And I think that that does have an effect. Well, the people um, are voting with their feet because in my news, more than a million voters across 43 states have switched to the Republican Party over the last year. This is a phenomenon that is being played out in nearly every region of the country, and it has all happened since Mr. Biden replaced Mr. Trump. The shift is most profound and most dangerous for the Democrats in suburban areas, but this is happening in cities and towns and urban, suburbans, rural. It's all over the place. The reason why the suburbs are so are so critical is because the suburban vote are the people who created the bridge from Mr. Trump to Mr. Biden. And those people are not with it anymore. In fact, a lot of people talk about this being a rejection of the left, not even really an embracing of the right, just a rejection of the the left because of things like mandatory COVID vaccines and the increasing levels of crime and the focus on racial justice. Um, Now, this doesn't ensure that Republicans are going to uh, win everything during the midterms, but it's a huge warning to Democrats. I want to read you two paragraphs Roughly four months before Election Day, Democrats have no clear strategy to address Biden's weak popularity and voters' overwhelming fear that the country is headed in the wrong direction with this party in charge. And while Republicans have offered few policy solutions of their own, the GOP has been working effectively to capitalize on the Democrats' shortcomings. So important point, right? It's not like the GOP is offering a compelling policy platform to people. The Democrats are doing this to themselves. Um, In fact, Ronna McDaniel, who is the chair of the Republican National Committee, 
says, and I quote, Biden and the Democrats are woefully out of touch with the American people. And that's why voters are flocking to the Republican Party in droves. She predicted that American suburbs will trend red for cycles to come because of Biden's gas hike, the open border crisis, baby formula shortage, and rising crime. The Democratic National Committee declined to comment when asked about the recent surge in voters switching to the GOP. Y'all what? What? (laughs) I mean, what else? What else is there? What else is there to say? Um, I I mean, so alarming, so crazy. This is like pure, plain data that the AP collected from, you know, voter registration rolls all across the country and... And the Dem- and the Republicans are like, mm-mm-mm, they ain't crap. Not we are, just they ain't. And the Democrats have a no comment. Um, I, I My heart goes out to my organizing friends, my get out to vote friends, my, my people who are registering people to vote because that's where the real work happens. We look at what happened in Arizona. We look at what happened in Georgia. And that wasn't because we had all of these amazing people in the DNC who were doing what they needed to do. It was because grassroots organizers, regular people um, who were concerned about their state got out and did the stuff. And I know those people are like, God, dog, I went out here and got all of these people to vote. And now the party writ large is making that untenable moving forward. Um, And so, you know, just continuing on the theme of not meeting the Democratic Party, not meeting the moment, we're in some real trouble, friends. I'm never, I was not surprised by this article and I'm never surprised about what is going, like what is going on with America, specifically when it comes to voting conservative. I do think so again intellectual empathy is my superpower so i try to <laughs> put myself on it i'm like if i'm somewhere <laughs> in the suburbs with 2.5 children and a and a and a and a spouse and wanting to live this 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 suburban this suburban life and all i see is you know bathrooms uh changing and people protesting and somebody making me do things and all these other things and the only but then on the other hand we have donald trump who's so like this kind of new party that donald trump um created inside of the republican party then i think it makes sense that now that biden's in office and things kind of feel a smidge more settled in certain ways that i think that you wouldn't necessarily relate what Trump is doing to the Republican Party. And I do think, from what I've heard from this Republican pundits and conservative pundits, that this separation of, oh, this is Trump's party and this is the real Republican Party, I think that those ethos have been spreading and I think it's been working. I think a lot of people are wanting to take the Republican Party back and wanting something that isn't as extreme and as... um, ostracizes what Trump is doing, but still want a more conservative America, an America that is that moves slower than I think, you know, <laughs> all the things you just named what I'm thinking about, like racial justice and and the trans conversation and, and COVID and all those other things that I think kind of like trigger the the cons- the, the conservative voter. Um it makes it makes sense to me. Do y'all think that 
it's gonna work what it what what's gonna happen see i don't even know if it's like a rejection of the left as much as it's like a lot of people I know who are disillusioned are like, you know what? It's not guaranteed you will win, but at least fight like hell on the way down. And it feels like the left is just not even fighting. So like when AOC got heckled by that racist white guy on the steps of the Capitol and she tweeted, I went over to go deck him, but I needed to catch a vote more than a catch a case. You're like, bars. And fight, like, do, like at this point, what can you lose? They were going to storm the Capitol and kill you. What could you lose by fighting the man? You know, like, and and instead, Roe v. Wade gets undone. And what do the dim leadership do? They're singing Kumbaya on the stairs. You're like, is this, this is wild. That is crazy. So, so I do think that, I don't think that we've even made a good case for why they should stay over here. Because it's not, we can't even say we fight for you. We not. We are slow rolling it. We having meetings to the the other side is fighting us tooth and nail. And we are just like, hey, guys, we're coming to work today. And you're like, we are going to la, la, la into no world. We're not going to be here. It's not going to be nothing to fight for soon enough. Do you think the average American, specifically that suburban voter, sees the people who participate in the insurrection as Republicans? I, I get what you're saying about like some of the, you think some of them that like Trump and the party are two different things. Yes. I, I do think they see them as Republicans, and I I think that they see the silence of the Republican Party condemning them. I think that Liz Cheney's probably helping out the Republicans the most because she is both being a badass on that committee and she is a Republican. She's like a card-carrying Republican, and I think that she is probably doing what— I think she is both helping us get those people out of here, but I do think that she is normalizing this idea that, like, there are real Republicans and you should join us, and then there are the wild Trump people. I found a Pew study that says the United States stands out among 17 advanced economies as one of the most conflicted when it comes to questions of social unity. This article goes on to talk about both political conflict, but race conflict, conflict in like in, in, in a very local level in communities. So I don't know. I mean, just to, to a point Kaya made before, it's like, what kind of country are we? And I think we now have generations of generations who literally have it in like their bones and molecules that this was a country that was founded on stolen land. Those those, the, The descendants of those folks are now probably the most vulnerable population in the United States, maybe globally. We are still reeling from the legacies of slavery. I mean, we are, we're, if you think about it, we are a country that was, where we founded on conflict, right? Part of our culture is conflict. I mean, anybody, and I also just feel like just in a very anecdotal level, like the number of interactions I have where people just get really upset over nothing all the time. You got in front of me in line. What? Okay. All right, everybody. So, I mean, all that to say, I don't have any answers, Miles. I don't know what's going to happen, but I think I'm more and more beginning to understand that, like, we have work to do when it comes to just social unity within our own communities, within other communities, within, within, within all of it. Because I think that's why people are switching over, right? Because they're just like, oh, I'm not. I, I, th- those people aren't supporting me. They have nothing to do with me. So I'm going to go over here. Okay. Yeah, I think the United States has like an implicit. I think we just always see the United States and we think there's a period at the end. And I think we're we we seeing the, the question mark. 
<laughs> there you go. That's exactly yeah. right. My news is sad. So, you know, I love a good mini story before I totally read somebody for Phil's. Is I really loved this. <laughs> I really love... Uh, okay. I'm in middle school. I'm listening. I'm a weird, artsy, black, queer kid. I'm listening to NERD. I'm listening to Khalees. I'm listening to Andre 3000. I'm listening to... Mm, Janelle Monae was a little bit later, but still, you, you get where I'm going with this. And another person who I'm listening to is Macy Gray. Macy Gray was one of those people, because of her voice, because of the type of music she participated in, was really... Uh, I felt I found like a hero in somebody who was able to be weird, black, and popular. There's there's no other um, my black queer American dream was wow you could be black weird and popular all at the same time. I did not see that proof in my reality at the time in middle school. Um, so the idea that I can grow up and that can happen was what was amazing to me. And then also the music was just really good, really different, and it breaks my heart that. Uh, yet again, I'm listening to somebody talk, and I'm like, what, when did this happen? When did the regression happen? Macy Gray went on Piers Morgan, <laughs> who I don't even know how to show still, went on Piers Morgan and decided to not promote the album, not do anything else. She said, you know, you know what the, you know what the, the people need to hear me talk about? trans issues and trans identity she goes to say i will say this and everyone's gonna hate me that part that comma is usually when you should not talk <laughs> i will say this and everyone's gonna hate me but as a woman just because you go change your body parts doesn't make you a woman sorry grace said that while supports trans rights she draws a line of athletic competition she added if you want me to call you a, a her i will because that's what you want but that doesn't make you a woman just because i call you a her and just because you got a surgery a woman goes through a completely unique experience in surgery and finding yourself doesn't change that being a little girl is a whole epic book you know you can't have just you can't have just because you want to be a woman um I think what really makes me sad about this is because I do think that when it comes to cis black women and trans non-binary trans women, this whole gender conversation, I think there's so much bridging that can happen because I think that cis black women have been stripped of gender, humanity, and, the, and and I think the trans conversation can really speak to advocating for all Black people when it comes to just human rights and what does it mean to be a human in America when you, we came here stripped of gender and in, in, in humanity. I think that is such a missed opportunity just to equal your womanhood to the parts that you have or to say womanhood and in childhood and girlhood only happens in one way. I think the more diverse we come and the more diverse we think about womanhood and gender and how we arrive at gender or non-gender or whatever, I think the more we will start to see that the scam of the, the binary is really this patriarchal white supremacist thing that has been superimposed on us that black people naturally, in my opinion, don't fit. It's not in our history. It's not in our bloodlines. It's not in our spirit lines. And I think the more we have these conversations, the more we'll arrive at, like, wait, there's actually this kinship in, in thought, even if we don't have this kinship and experience. And I, it makes me sad that somebody like Macy Gray, who to me is, is, is already seen as an outcast and as this kind of like thought and creative rebel, couldn't just read a book or have a conversation first. Um, I think the biggest thing that I, <laughs> that I have is that what, like when, uh, women, men don't own gender. Cis people do not own gender. So again, I think that's hard to 
think about when you, when we're kind of socialized to think the opposite. But it's like, no, if femininity is not owned by cis women, and that that's a huge thing. And then the other thing that just bothers me the most about this conversation is how this climate of expressing opinion, expressing thought, and not wanting to be challenged first. Like, I just don't understand why people get these opinions and then just arrive at, I'm on Piers Morgan telling it. Like, where's the bridge? The first thing that happens when DeRay has an opinion or if I have something, DeRay will call me and work it out and I'll tell you I don't believe that and DeRay still might go and say what he thinks is true or I'll still write what I want to write or express what I want to express. But this resistance to have your thoughts challenged and expounded upon before you just give it to the world, I really believe needs to stop. Um, This made me sad... You know, I had to listen to Lizzo's music on Supermax just to wash out all the all the all the hatred. You know, I had to listen to the music of love, aka Lizzo, to wash it all out. And I just wanted to see what y'all's opinions on it. Um on it is specifically because I don't know, I feel like it's generational, I feel like it's racial, like I wanted to know what you all's opinion on is what she said, besides it just like not being good, and I'm sure y'all don't agree, but just what what do you think is happening? Like what what can we do to fix this bridge, this gap? I have a technical question. It's just a technical question. Because I thought she said exactly what you said on Pierce Morgan, but then she went on the Today Show and was like, my bad, I, like, I messed this up. And she says, you know, I've learned a lot through this. It was a huge learning experience for me. You can call yourself whoever you believe you are. Nobody can dictate that for you or take that away from you. Being a woman is a vibe and is something I'm very proud of and something that is very precious to me. I think that if you and your heart feel that that's what you are, then that's what you are, regardless of what every, anybody says or thinks. I've learned a lot and I'm glad I did because now I know. Yeah, yeah. So I thought she said so the, the bad I, stuff and then came back and said... The reason why I still brought this in is because she just reiterated what she said with Pierce Morgan. She said that same thing what I just quoted. If you see it side by side, those are the same yeah. ideas. So the gap... So, oh, so, okay. So, so, the, so, so it was a fake apology and I fell for it? I don't, I don't want to call it <laughs> fake, but I'm like, you never... In the first original statement that got you blasted, you had said those words that you like, I'll call you whatever you want to be called. You get to identify what you're being identified with. But you bought, but you barred womanhood uh. away from it in saying that, oh, but actually just because you do this, you're not, you're not a woman. And then because everything was going on, you reiterated and just said, I learned a lot. You didn't actually express what you learned. And I still, and I still I just intrinsically believe that in your head, you're still saying, you know what? If these people want to take these, do these surgeries and take these hormones and be called a woman, Whatever, you know, and I think that the gap to me is to actually extend some, like, to really have the conversation about gender amongst Black people and also amongst people who arrive at womanhood or femininity in different ways and to really have that conversation and really get some understanding and not just be scared away or wrap it in language. Does that make sense? I also think that, you know, this is a conversation that I've had with a lot of people and they are, they do have a lot of questions and like people are trying to work through ideas. All those things are real. And that's just <laughs> not what Macy Gray did, you know? Like, it's like part of the, part of the, part of the work is to like be like, oh, I think this, does that make sense? Da 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 da. Let me read. Da 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 da. Like, and we won't always agree. That doesn't mean that you'll end up where we might like you to end up. 
But at least going through the process actually says, like, I had a thoughtful conversation about how a whole set of people live in the world, as opposed to sort of this idea that just says, because I, like, had this random thought, I suddenly am an authority on it, and on a platform of a guy who doesn't give two rats behinds about you or anybody. Like, it's not like you did this with Oprah, who, like, does actually care, and you did this on a platform who he's using you at best, you know? It was like... That just didn't work, which is why it makes sense to me that she would go on like somewhere else and do the apology because like they actually do. They care about you. They like want you to be a whole person when you leave their platform and and that whole thing. So I think I was just I think I'm sort of shocked that this continues to happen. Not that people disagree about things. I'm not shocked about that. We'll live in that. But like the lack of thought that people put into uh, these questions of identity and the lack of nuance and sort of understanding always surprises me. I just smiles again. It's a testament to your kindness because who? Huh? <laughs> Since you all right, like welcome, Macy, Petty Betty. I welcome. mean, I feel about Macy Gray the same way I felt felt about Whitney. Like, who is watching her? Who watching her? So again, Miles, you are just so. You're just so wonderful and so precious to really think that this woman is just in a consciousness where I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to leave it there because Patty Patty's going, y'all want to get in trouble. I'm adding, adding her to the prayer list. I love adding it. her to the prayer list. Listen, I, I think we all deserve, I love Black people and I love Black artists and I love Black folks who are not artists. And in my head, if I'm thinking about radical love, right, and I'm reading my bell hooks and Martin Luther King, I'm like, just because you got a little crack cocaine filter over what you're saying doesn't mean I should not extend <laughs> my empathy to, to, you know, I want I want you, to, I want us all to be free. <laughs> I'm done. Nope. nope. <laughs> Miles, I, I actually... But Miles, I think that's the most important thing that that mm. you said in this, right? Like, so there's two, I, I feel like there are two camps of I'm okay with this, right? One is, or maybe uh, there are two sort of perspectives that I think are very interesting. One is right. kind of live and let live, right? Like, I don't care what you are, do you? I want you to be happy. Right. I want you to be whoever you are, Right. And and what you introduce is something further, which is it's not just live and let live. It is extend grace and empathy to somebody who might be different from you. And that calls us to a higher level of love than just live and let live. And I think we're comfortable in the live and let live right. space. You can be whoever you want to, right? That's cool. But, but extending grace and real empathy means creating space for people in your world. It means going out of your way to do things that you might not otherwise do for people who are different than you. And that is that is what radical love is. That is what being an ally is. That is what is different. So I think what you're, the big point to me that you elevate is like live and let live is not enough. It's basic. It's specifically when you're somebody like, my Auntie Kaya or Macy Gray, where wait, wait, not, wait, wait a minute, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. 
but uh, what I'm saying is somebody who is not bigoted, who is not like just saying just wild stuff, and you're like, oh, that's that's a goner, you know? That's right. somebody who's never gonna have. And then also, I think that I know when I would talk to cis black men, cis het black men, and really have them have the best enlightenment around, let's say, homophobia, was when they actually thought through how homophobia arrived in their cishet mm-hmm. life and how how certain words and certain abuses were done to them and how homophobia has arrived with them even though they don't have the sexual desires and and my bigger thing is wait if you're if you're not bigoted if we're not separated by just this like blind hatred then maybe the next level to me would be for you to see how transphobia as a cis black woman has also arrived at your in your life and has also arrived in and and then how you move and what you've been able to do and how you've been perceived you know and then it no longer becomes live and let live i'm gonna let y'all do y'all or whatever then you truly become an advocate you truly become uh uh an ally because you understand that this hatred also arrives in your life even if you're not assumed the identity that is like the billboard for this hatred I'm just, I was just joking about the, the crack cocaine filter sometimes the way my, you just delivered it was, it was so beautiful. great though it really was <laughs> that's what gets me in trouble with my wit don't go anywhere more Podtake the People's coming Keeping up with the flood of news every single day can be stressful. But Crooked Media's What a Day, a daily 20-minute podcast, breaks down the biggest news stories into bite-sized pieces that don't make you want to cry. What a Day is co-hosted by Travel Anderson, Priyanka Arbadini, and Josie Duffy Rice. Not to mention their wonderful guests who are huge fans of the show too, like John Favreau, Chase Strangio, Kristen. What a Day is co-hosted by Travel Anderson, Priyanka Arbindi, and Josie Duffy Rice. And not to mention, there are a host of wonderful guests like John Favreau, Kirsten Gillibrand, Dr. Abdul El Sayed, and more. New episodes of What a Day drop every weekday at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart. Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not 
eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. I realized that the older I get, the more unhinged my comments are. That I feel a lot of similarity to Macy Gray. I really... No, I don't. I don't. I don't say Diddy the crazy. Um, you know, for me, it's more just like who Kai and I were having this, you know, little banter earlier. Whose people did that person come from? But anyway, so I'm going to get into my news. It is. I don't know if y'all saw it, but a couple. It was this week. Um, Mayor Mariel Bowser was at an uh, LGBTQ event. So basically what had happened was she was making a speech, giving some remarks, and then at the end, press were asking her questions. And this person who's identified as an activist said, you've done a lot for the LGBT community. <clears throat> Very appreciative of that. It's amazing. Now there's a lot of rumors about you being a lesbian. What's going on with that? And are, um, are you a lesbian? And so Meryl Bowser replies well i'm not in the closet and then the crowd's like "Ooh, oh ooh, okay because it's you know again i think everyone was trying to get down to get to the bottom of that rumor right and what what the, the truth is there now okay well and then let me continue with the story and then so the, the way her comment was the way her response was received by so many was that oh she's you she has come out like she is a lesbian a day later, her office puts out a statement that's basically like, I am straight. Okay. Now, so many things here. One, the first thing is, how dare you, whoever you are, ask this woman that question? That ain't none of your business. It's none of your business. None of your business. And I just feel like and you would never ask would a never man ask a man. that. You would never, never ask never, a white woman never. that. You would never. I mean, that is the, the mayor of it, Washington it, D.C. Get out of t- get out of here. So I think my first reaction was that, right? Like just all of that. Then once I got through my upsetness and my trauma, and started to think about it with more of a shade room lens, <laughs> I'm like, well, what is going on? And I'm gonna leave it there, you know, because again, that's her business, but I am on my own time trying to figure out, do I invite her to my events? Do I like, what <laughs> is she on my team or what? Diara. <laughs> well, we're, we're, listen, we will welcome, we will welcome you. We will welcome you. We are welcoming people, lesbians, when you can find us. So. That's all I'm saying. So I'm going to leave it there. I don't want to get in any trouble. I'm going to leave it there. That's all I got to say. And, and again, as I'm saying, people probably should work out their thoughts, you know, amongst friends before giving them to the world. I'm about to 
totally provide an unworked out thought. You're so, all <laughs> friends. We're working it out right here together. It's okay. Right. So the so the part about so I do think that coming out this is and I have to ex- I have to be honest about having to extend um, a lot of like again that intellectual empathy to this because I was always perceived as a queer uh, thing in the world. So because of my femininity, because of how I arrived, because of gender expression, I never had like a closet. I was I was always like I'm like mm, yeah, and then me defining that has been a journey of me like accepting um, transness and non-binary and and certain sexual all this different stuff that has I've been clear about my definition, but everybody has always been able to look at me and say that tank has some uh, sweet and low in it. So I think that the violence of outing somebody, I had to really mature into and understand. And now I totally understand it. But my other thing, and that's a full sentence, right? So you are wrong. Full sentence. Got it. However, I also think to myself, isn't a part of being a public politician selling family, selling your life? And even when you think about the highest political... When you think about the presidency, your whole family's in this White House, and it's not like a part of the game that you're playing. So isn't it, isn't it weird to try to be mysterious about that? Isn't it weird to try to? I don't know. Like I I I I, I totally understand the outrage, but then I also just think, isn't this a part of the the game that you enter? I don't have much. Um, I don't have much to add. I do agree with what has been said. Is that they wouldn't have asked this question of a whole host of other people. And especially post-Trump, people are saying whatever they want at these things. When she said, I'm not in the closet, I was like, oh, got it. Okay, cool. Like, there were there were other ways to answer that question, but she said it this way. And I was like, okay, got it. And then the statement actually just confused it. I was like, I don't know what's going on. I was like, let me just go back to what I was doing. I don't really understand what's happening right here. Let me just go back to what I was doing and keep it moving. But I think miles to miles to your point, I think this is like when we we think about queer folks of color in office, right? Like what was his name? He's the first queer black man in Congress now. He's from New York. I'm forgetting his name. I'm forgetting his name because I unfollowed him on Twitter after he was Mondaire. doing some Israel stuff online. Um, uh, no, no, no. Richie. No, Richie, Richie Torres, Richie Torres, right? So it's it's wild that just what a couple years ago that was like our first out queer, you know, black identifying person in Congress, right? So, and I think when we start to think about the the black community and all of the issues and challenges we face <laughs> around accepting everyone. I think that's miles when it gets, because I think it's it's a conversation around, can our people not, can our folks when they run for office not be who they are? Right? You, you look at Andrew Gillum. It's like, that's, it's another example of like, you know, he is from a very conservative part of Florida and went to, you know, a, a, he went to FAMU, a school that I love, but not necessarily a school that was going to be in the 90s op- open to his queerness. You know what I mean? So I feel like, I think I think you're definitely onto something in terms of can you know can black leaders be their full selves if part of that identity is anything other than being hetero 
you know? So I think that I hadn't even thought about that, but I think that is kind of that that's where my mind is going now. And that is really, wow. Yeah. I just think about that pursuit of power and just how so much of that is just about marketing your personal life. And here's this idealistic, because even the other, the one who, uh, the what he's a white gay man, but he ran for president, uh, I, Child, y'all know who I'm talking about? Pete Buttigieg. Yes, yes. Um, when 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 he came, even when I think he had to figure out a way to present his personal life in a way that could get could could get him to get power. And I think that like it's just weird just to keep that a secret when so much of you know being a, a, a successful politician is about marketing that and showing that and showing that your politics and what you're doing at your job and what you do at home align and it's about kind of making it make sense. So I totally understand the outrage and agree with it. But that's that's the thing that I think makes this difficult, right? Because as a, a former public figure, right, the reason that I did not want to be a public figure is because I wanted to maintain some semblance of a personal life, that everything is not for everybody, that I get to keep some things to myself. And I think as a person, politics will eat your whole entire soul if you don't maintain something for yourself, your family, your friends, your relationship, your kids, your something. This is why we say kids are off limits in politics or, you know, people who didn't sign up. Your neighbors, my neighbors took heat for stuff that I was doing at work that didn't have anything to do with them, right? And I think there's a question for me about public service. These are people who have committed to you know, serving the public. And does that mean that you get all of me? You get to eat me up, say anything, do anything, act any kind of way. And I I understand the alignment thing, right? Because what the reporter asked her was, he said, you know, you've been an ally of the LGBTQ community, but we don't know if we can trust you because we have heard that you're a closeted lesbian, right? And as inappropriate as that was, you people want to trust people. People want to trust their politicians. People want to know that their politicians are like them and whatnot. And I don't know how to work out this conundrum because like these are real people. These are not, you know, these are not like, I don't know, artificially made, whatever. Like, and you know, I don't agree with everything that Mayor Bowser does or says or whatever, but I think that. I wonder how we have real people who stay connected to real people serving in public service when we feel like we're able to consume them fully. I don't know how those two things fit together. I just don't necessarily buy that who you're married to or who you're dating is consuming you fully, specifically when it seems to be so baked in to that particular path. Like your family goes and lives in a place. You, 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 the, 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 the wife or spouse is kissing babies. You are showing how good, like this is a part of that package. So I do think that. But that's not a part of her package, right? That's not a, because you choose what package you send out. And, and for a lot of people, like when they make the decision to become public, they have a, they have to ask their husband or wife, are you, or a partner or a spouse or whoever, are you willing to do this with me? And some say yes. And some say no. 
There are politicians mm-hmm. who we don't know jack about their families because the spouse didn't sign up for that. And I think so maybe it's like people get to present themselves in whatever ways they want to. She has presented herself as a mother, as a single mm-hmm. woman, and she ain't never talked about what her she was dating at one point. Now she's not like. I, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I think, I think if you, if you come out with the, like, here's who I am, I'm a family woman, I'm a this, that, and the other, then maybe so. But do, do we have to, do you have to present, like, do you get to present your, your version of yourself or do people get to define you because that's what other politicians do? I'm all for people. Um, I want to know less and less about people. Um, <laughs> I want that to be normalized. So nothing makes me happier than the idea of knowing <laughs> less and less about people. People could just do their job, create their art, do what they're good at in, the, in politics, and and, the, and us really do that. But I, I, w- I guess I was just thinking from my point of view that it just seems like such a part of gaining power and advancing in politics is a part is is also kind of figuring out a way to market your personal life and the and, and be able to curate it and I'm sure still keep things to yourself but then also be able to like market it so people can feel like they know you and that you're and that you're a good leader so I was just thinking that may- that's the that is the that's the conundrum yeah. and I think the other through line though what I'm thinking about though is like also her having the space to be able to choose like Kaya I don't want her to not be able to put who she is out there because she's scared that if who if, if just you know if who she is we don't know who she we don't know this aspect of her but if who she is is queer and she's too afraid or not comfortable enough to to express that I think that that that's that's the that's the the, the pain point for me and I just I just sent y'all just in our our chat Jalen McKee Rodriguez, who became the Texas first black gay lawmaker ever elected to the state of Texas, in the state of Texas in 2021. This is what I'm saying. Like this is, I I think this is a deeper thing with our leaders not feeling like they can be who they are. The first black gay man elected in Texas in 2021. I know you're saying that like it's shocking, but I'm like, it sounds about right. But like, yeah, it's still, it's still really. But it, but it is, I think, but I think the context is that like, yeah, there's some there are other elected there are other folks that I love and adore that are running for office, too. And we don't know what's going on with them. And it's just like, is it because well, now she's outwardly said that she, you know, she's they, straight and, you know, believe her. I've, I, so like she, she outwardly said that she's straight. My 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 hope is that that is just the truth and you weren't doing it in order to not abandon certain people because if anything comes out to contradict that now you're I, I, that will that will be bad. Because now, now you don't lie. Then, then she in trouble with you. She's not in trouble with me. She's not in trouble with me because I get it. I totally get it. After, after June, I, 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 I doubt my place in the community all the time. After June, all that partying, I'm like, maybe I need to. Maybe I need to leave the community too. I totally understand. (laughs) No, but I totally get it. But I just hope that she just didn't. I hope. Yeah, I just, I just hope that she's just really straight and that's it because I do think it could go ugly if it comes out that she's not because I, then I do think the queer community will not be able to trust you or and then even people who are not community queer community they might be like well you still lied to us like you know 
Right. But shout out to that shelter. It's a shelter for adults, too, which I think we we definitely need more and more um, queer shelters for adults, adult LGBT members, because, you know, when you look at the statistics of homelessness and underpayment, it, it really hits us hard and it doesn't stop just because we turn 18. I'm really shocked. My work in organizing, every day I'm exposed to new things. And I'm like, oh, this is really wild. And I didn't know. And then I'm up here just reading the news. And I did not know, because I don't know much about foster care, I realized, is that families get charged for foster care when their kids get taken from them. Had no clue. And the news is about the federal government has now issued guidance uh, from through HHS that says a state and county child welfare officials for the first time can stop sending bills to parents. Now, I had no clue that there was federal legislation that was passed in 1984 that requires state and local county child welfare agencies to, when appropriate, collect money from families and return part of it to the U.S. Treasury to reimburse the federal government which pays for the biggest percentage or a large percentage of foster care. Um, And now they're undoing that. And like, I just didn't, no clue. Didn't know this was a thing. I thought it was already punishment enough to take kids away from their families. I had no clue um, that we were actually charging the families. And as you can imagine, a lot of the families are already dealing with like the thing that becomes the child abuse or the thing that becomes the unfit or the thing that causes it is often a lack of resources. So taking more resources from the home uh, while the kid is gone is actually wild. And those resources aren't even going to the family, like the foster families. Those are going to, to reimburse the government that you're already paying a gazillion dollars in taxes to. Um, and it just blew my mind. I wanted to bring it here because we're always mindful when we talk about mass incarceration, we talk about these systems. It's rarely the big stuff that you see on the news. It is often the accumulation of all of these things that happen that really put people in a bind. This also made me think of um, how the Biden team just has to start talking about the good stuff too. I mean, we're critical and we'll always be critical, but there's good stuff happening. This is a big deal. Never got undone. Obama didn't undo it. Nobody else undid it. And then it gets undone during his administration. And I found it randomly. I wasn't, you know, I, I don't know how I stumbled across it, but I found it and more people need to know. So I wanted to bring it here because it really did actually surprise me. You know, I'm, I'm cynical, so I can be a little cynical around these issues. So <laughs> it did not bring me optimism that it happened under Biden. It brought me a lot of cynicism that it ever existed in general. <laughs> so that's really my biggest uh, takeaway from it is that there's so many ways that we do not know that are hidden in scene that exploit people who are in um, some of the worst situations you can arrive at in life. Um, and I think just having so many friends who are in foster care in that system and people who've, and then also knowing parents who've um, had unfortunate circumstances or de- dealt with addiction to also then tax you on that. It's just disgusting that it ever took place. So I, it, it, I, it doesn't make me smile that Biden did it. It makes me frown that we live in a country that thinks to um, exploit before it thinks to help. Yeah, I'm with you, Miles. I literally was like, 
This is just another indication that we don't give a hoot about poor people, that we are invested in keeping poor people poor and continuing to punish them for being poor. I mean, the piece about the lady who, you know, her kids were in foster care for 20 months or something, and she finally gets them back and she gets a $19,000 bill from foster care. I mean, like, how does that work at all? Um, I just, you know, Diara was talking, we were talking earlier about other countries and their humanity towards um, poor people. And we just, we got none of it. I, we don't, as a nation, we, uh, the things that we believe about poor people, the way that we treat poor people, is just quite reprehensible. Um, and so this just made me, I, I'm, I, yeah, I'm trying to get on the happy train, DeRay, and think this is good that this is eradicated. But, um, but, but the thing that made me mad about it is it, it wasn't eradicated. It says that states may choose to no longer um, charge people. And the way these state legislatures are working, you can be sure that there are going to be a whole lot of states that choose to keep on charging people. And so like this, I don't, this makes me want to vomit. It is, it's disgusting. And it, I don't understand how we claim to have family values in this country or to value families or to want to keep families intact when, I mean, this, we did the thing about, you know, child support payments. I, the, the whole thing is just rotten around how we treat poor people. The thing that was least surprising is that the story in the article is about a woman in Minnesota. We all know. Um, I think my people are from Minnesota. I was born in Minneapolis. And if I ever become a very wealthy person, I'm going to get everybody out. We're leaving the state. You can have it. You can absolutely have it. Through race spend time. Mm. He knows what I'm talking about. So my mom said, mm. I wouldn't raise a chicken in Minnesota. No, I wouldn't raise a chicken in Minnesota. For all of our Minnesota fans, we love you. And Minnesota is a lovely place. For I'll have you anytime. I have two bedrooms. You can come stay. No, I mean, all my family's there. We're all there. But, you know, we're doing it's, it. Just I think that that was the least surprising thing for me. Minnesota nice. And the, just the, the, the reputation that that state had for so long. And people are really understanding what's going on there. Minnesota, Mississippi, you know. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People's coming. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. This week, we welcome author Van Lathan Jr. to chat about his book, Fat, Crazy, and Tired, Tales from the Trenches of Transformation. Now, it was incredible. I learned a lot about him. I knew him, but there were these stories about how he dealt with loneliness and how he dealt with his weight and what it was like to lose the weight and the way people treated him and his family and his father. All these things that I didn't know that I want to share with you that we talk about. The book was moving on a host of fronts, and I learned a lot. 
I hope that you will too. Each chapter holds a valuable lesson for readers to take from the narrative, and there's so many gems. Here we go with Van Lathan Jr. You might know him because he challenged Kanye when he worked at TMZ. When Kanye said that slavery is a choice, that was a viral moment that we all saw. And he has an incredible podcast, and he's an author of a book, a book that we're talking about now. Fat, crazy, tired. Here we go, Van. Van, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. What's up? How you guys doing? Good, good, good. I'm excited to uh, to talk to you about your book. I've known you for a while, but now you're a published author of the book Fat, Crazy, and Tired. And let's start with how did you get to LA and Hollywood? Like, why did you why did you choose the career that you have? Let's start there, and then we'll talk about the book. My mom. So, like, uh, it there's one moment, and I, I I remember life in moments like this. People always go, Vance, telling a story for everything, but it's, it's true. Me and my mother were sitting down and like, uh, it's like 10 or 11 years old and we're watching Do the Right Thing. And the way my mother tells the story, it's like she was surprised that I could understand the movie because Spike Lee was such a big deal. It's like 1990, 1989 or something. And she's watching the movie for the first time on VHS. They used to have these tapes called VHSs and we'd stick them into this box and then the box would play the movie. I don't know if people remember that. Um, but, uh, and she sees me watching the movie and she sees that I'm like enthralled by it, you know? And she says to me, she goes, uh, Mookie, you see Mookie? I'm like, yeah. She goes like, Mookie wrote and directed the movie. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? And she goes, well, he wrote the movie. You know, everything that's happening, it came from his mind. And then he directed it. And that means that he stood on there, like on the set and told everybody what to do. And my response to her was, they let Black people do that? And, like, she can't tell the story without, like, tearing up and, you know, getting all emotional and stuff. And she was like, yeah, you can do whatever you want to do. And I was like, oh. And I remember saying to her, I want to do that. And (laughs) she said, okay, well, are you saying, yeah. And so I think I already loved movies and TV, but I had a deep love after I felt like I realized that it was possible for me to be a part of it. And even though it took a winding road for me to get out here to LA and there was a lot of pit stops along the way, that's always the thing inside of me that kept me going, just the the desire to want to create. Boom. And and why, um, why book? Most of us, most of the people who don't know you uh, as a friend, either know you from your podcast, which is dope, or they know you from TMZ World. Uh, but I didn't. I didn't meet you as an author. So why a book? There are many. You have already told your story in a host of formats. What made you want to do a book? Um, if I'm being honest, the book, the, the telling the book was like, it's partly me wanting to tell it in long form and really do some service to you know my upbringing and how I was. But part of it was definitely like when you start getting managed by like Hollywood types, and when people think of the Van Lathan total package they go oh we gotta write a book about your uh, about your life and so i think that at the beginning of it i didn't really have much desire to do it but life changed so drastically while i was writing the book i lost my father the pandemic happened i gained some weight and while i was writing the book it became cathartic for me during really i wrote my way out of some pretty intense depression that I think people, 
a lot of people were feeling during the pandemic. So uh, it ended up being sent by God that I was doing it because it allowed me to sit down and get into my my thoughts and contextualize them, you know? Now, your dad is a big part of the book uh, Uh and a big part of the story. Can you talk about how he figures into the way you tell your own story in your life? Yeah, so I always had a North Star in my life. And that North Star was like my father, you know? Um, He had a very specific worldview and outlook on life and it was um it was informed by his upbringing he's from a small town Maryland, louisiana maybe 1400 people there when you go there you see the same thing there now that i saw in 1986 1987 when i was going there as a kid i think for him he wanted to instill in me those roots and values while at the same time understanding that I would be adapted to the contemporary world that I was a part of, which he never wanted to adapt to. So for me, a lot of, a lot of my life has been about um, convincing my father that I'm worthy of my last name. And it's a weird way to sort of live because him and I never really got along like that. It, we, we got along, but you know, how could you really get along with Superman? There's something irrelatable there to where you you're like you're always trying to fly and you can never quite get off the ground um and so when i lost my father that pursuit was over and i mourned that as much as i mourned losing him i mourned the fact that i would never get a chance to convince him that i was like worthy to be his son like it's so weird until this story of the book is like we're in the house one day. This stuff is just like weird, small stuff. We're in the house one day, and there's a wasp in the house. Louisiana, big killer wasps, hornets, just, you know, bite your whole neck swell up. And me and my friends are in there, and it's in there, and we're laughing and running around like, oh, here you come, blah, 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 Like, blah, blah, blah. My dad comes home, cowboy hat on, sweat, whole nine, big 357 on the side, and he sees us, right? And it flies by him and he grabs it with his hand and he crushes it. <laughs> and, and, and like, and all of us are like, Jesus. And later on that day, I look at his hand and there's a gigantic welt. It's not that it didn't hurt. Is that in his life, sometimes you got to crush the wasp. And it was just stuff like that. Like that's, you know. I was watching Monty Python movies, one o'clock in the morning. I had a different, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like I was, I was different. So I think that uh, I think that my life in chasing the example that he set, uh, you know, I'm 42 now. I think that has been the thing that kept me on track, that kept me out of trouble, that kept me doing all of this stuff. And now that he's gone, I, I'm, I have to find a new rudder, and it's interesting. You know, on page 104, you write, while my mother tried her best uh, to shield me from any potential wound, my father had the pesky habit of traumatizing me. And and later you go in, uh, I'm trying to get all my bookmarks, is that you go in then to talk about his own issues and talk about detachment was my father's trauma camouflage. And I think you do such a compelling job of um, showing how he was a complex person and a complex dad. I'd love to know, like, what were the one or two lessons that you took from him that have 
that, especially since he's passed, that you carry with you in your life moving forward? Like, what are those, what are those things? Or like, how has that shaped the way that you show up in the world today? Um, well, the two messages. One is just confront it. Whatever it is in front of you, just deal with it. My father had the uncanny way. Sometimes you felt like he was making too big a a deal of things with the way that he was just, he was obsessive about getting through whatever problem was in front of him. You know? So if I'm not my father's son, the Kanye West thing never happens because people around the room, they're, they're like paralyzed by his fame. And not to say that I wasn't. The guy's was one of my heroes artistically. But whatever is in front of me, whatever happens, what we get, we get it out then. Like, like you say it, we can go to lunch and dinner after. We could be cool. We could be family. We could kick it. But whatever happens, right then, you approach and deal with the thing that's in front of you. And that's just how he was. The second thing was and I don't mean to polarize your audience, was like, don't take no crap from white people. <laughs> like, my, like my dad, like my dad, <laughs> I remember my dad, we're on the job site one time and we had poured out, he was, a con- he was a contractor, we had poured out this driveway and a guy was trying to get over on him. And the guy was like, uh, white guy, really rich, very, very influential in town. He was like, well, you guys poured it out, but I want to let you know it's going to rain. So if it rains and it messes it up, then, you know, we're going to have to talk about the payment. And my dad goes, if it rains and it messes it up and it dries, you're going to come and have somebody break it out. And like, it's like, you're not going to keep the driveway that we just did here. And everybody's like, oh, my God, Terry. And my dad goes, no, 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 no. Let me tell you what's happening right here. I'm looking over uh, at, at Mr. Pennington, and he thinks that because we're some in words from overall guardian lane that he going to have us come out here and do all of this work and then not pay us for it because he's probably done that before. I just want to make sure that that's not what it is. And it, like he was, it was paralyzing the, 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 the fact that he, uh, he was talking to this guy who was a pretty powerful guy in town like this and everywhere we would go, whether it would be the cops, whether it would be uh, a doctor, whether it be a coach, he just was, he did not want me to feel inferior to the white authority power system. He just didn't, he never wanted me to. It's like, you're a man. It's like, you're a man. They're men. We have to live here together. You're nobody's boy. And he put that in me. And for better or for worse, I haven't been able to, to shake that. It almost, to be honest with you, I'm almost like, what'd you say? You know, <laughs> you know, like you, you, you know what I mean. Like I, it's almost like a hypervigilance inside of me. But to be honest with you, I think he was preparing me in a, in ways for the times that we were going to have to live in. You know, so there you have it. And so much of the book is about your journey with weight, and uh-huh. I learned a lot about you. I was like, okay, I didn't know this. Like I didn't know, um, I didn't know that you had been to the hospital so many times. And I didn't know about your battles with anxiety or uh, your battles with depression. I learned all of that. I have a lot of questions. Um, I'm interested, since the book, we're talking after the book has already been out, how has it been received around the conversation about about weight loss and weight? And, you know, there are people who 
are both, I'm sure, appreciative of the story and like, you know, well, you lost all this weight, right? So what does that mean in terms of how you talk about the struggle with weight today and how people treat you? I'd love to know how that's been. Well, number one, I just want people to know that it's impossible for to have these conversations when you're around DeRay because it's too joyous of a time. DeRay is always <laughs> showing you the most wondrous side of the world. Like we, like we're going to have a conversation one day where it's just like everywhere that I've been when I've been with DeRay and how can you be depressed? <laughs> like he, like he knows this to be true. Like you're, you're sitting at dinner and he's like, Oh my God, like whatever, whatever. Anyway. Um, but no, I think there are two things. Number one, I learned something by writing this book. I learned that, uh, I, I, I learned that the original way that I looked at myself was not at all, um, it wasn't very fulfilling. It wasn't very, uh, it wasn't right, if I'm being honest with you. I think that when you lose a bunch of weight, people look at you and they go, oh my God, like, wow, what an accomplishment. You know what I mean? And the reason why they feel that way is because you are transforming from something that they view as being one of the dregs of society to something that's being societally acceptable. Like you're joining a club. You're joining a club of fit people and that club is the more desirable way to be. And as I've gotten a little older and thought about that, I've thought about the ways that we should actually make space for people in our society, uh, in our community that have different body styles and different body shapes in us and how it's not an accomplishment that you lost a bunch of weight, unless that's what you wanted to do. It's not the it's not this the the fact that you look better than you did before. It's not the fact that you're now can fit into some size that you couldn't before. It, it's it has to be about something that you wanted for yourself. And I never looked at it that way. I look I looked at it in the past as joining a club, joining a club of people that were the normal people in society. And I think that um that really had more to do with my mental state than even my body sizes. I did not feel like I was a part of anything. I felt like society didn't want to make space for me on the bus or at a party or ladies sexually. I felt like I was encroaching upon them with my size. And that's changed now. And I think that that's changed in society. I think that that change is positive. As far as the mental stuff is, the dysfunction where I'm from is so absolutely astronomical that I'm just trying to talk to these brothers and sisters to let them know that there's a name for what it is that they have. And when you say dysfunction, what do you mean? I mean, uh, I mean the fact that we have anxiety, the fact that we're depressed, the fact that we have anger issues, the fact that we trauma bond, all of those things. Um, you've, you've been to Baton Rouge before. As a matter of fact, you were down in Baton Rouge when I probably should have been down in Baton Rouge. But and if you've been to my community and if you've been down there, we're just getting through it. We're just like, we're just moving, you know, and we're doing the best that we can. And there are a lot of people down there that are trying to help. A lot of people that come down there to try to help. But we just, we just, we just moving it. And the, the cops are on us. The BRPD is on us. Uh, our communities are destroyed. There are food deserts there. Um, and we end up fat, crazy, and tired. But we have to be able to have conversations about why this is happening and how we headed off at the pass in order to change things. Like my um when I first started having panic attacks, my uncle was like, You need to you need to get that checked out. There might be something wrong with you, like internally. I was like, I've been checked out. Physically, it's fine. 
He was like, I don't know. That runs in the family. That happens to me. I was like, what happens to you? He was like, you know, sometimes I wake up in a cold sweat, my heart racing. I had a bad dream. I'm screaming and I can't, I can't get myself together. I just walk around shaking and shaking and shaking. I'm looking at him. I'm like, well, you're having a panic attack. That's what it is. You're 46 years old. Like you're having one. And he's like, nah, I ain't, I ain't panicking. I'm like, Unk, yeah, you are. <laughs> you're like, like this you, is what it is. Yeah. I'm like, Unk, yeah, you are. And you, I'm, and the more things, you don't have to live that way. Like we can, it could be different. But, you know, unless we talk about it, unless somebody, you know, is is uh, vulnerable about it, we're not going to get to it. One of the things that you touch on in the book and that you, uh, th- you talk about it in the context of depression is essentially um, loneliness and what loneliness looks like. And you talk about uh, basketball as one of the one of the ways that you like built community and understood community and have friends and and basketball becomes a site that you also sort of work through the issues around weight. Um, I'm interested in like how you think about how men deal with loneliness and how you dealt with it and how uh, any advice for other guys, you know, because, you know, I'm sure you probably read the stories about like the loneliness epidemic, right? And how that the lack of community uh, allows so many things like depression, anxiety, all that stuff to just fester and to become bigger problems that we could address. And I'd love to know how you think about loneliness. So I think that loneliness is something um, that plagues men because we don't have enough socially acceptable ways of connection. You know what I mean? Um, as a man, like you're supposed to build a little kingdom and then people are supposed to want to come to your your kingdom, right? You're supposed to have enough clout, enough financial stability, enough sexual attraction, enough all of these things where everybody wants to be around you. You couldn't be lonely because there are too many people coming trying to come get around you, right? Uh, and if you don't have those things, you're less than a man. So loneliness is actually not just a shot. It's not just a state of being that you're in. It's a shot at your masculinity. Because what type of man, at least where I'm from, what type of man exists that nobody wants to be around him? What type of man exists that you're not protecting anyone, that you're not providing financial stability for anyone, that you're not having sex with anyone? You know what I mean? Um, the, The sexual component alone, if you're lonely, that means no women want to have sex with you. If no women want to have sex with you, no people want to have sex with you, should I say. And if no people want to have sex with you, then what good are you to the world? Like you're like you're nothing, especially in my crew. All of these great looking Lothario womanizing guys, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, um, and so I think a lot of times we can't really discuss our loneliness because it's too much of a referendum on who we are, right? And we can't also discuss the fact that we love and are attracted to our friends. Like, why do you have the same homies that you had? in 1993, 1994, 1995, because these are the people who you feel tender love and acceptance and platonic or sometimes not platonic attraction to, right? For whatever reason. But because we can't be vulnerable, we can't talk about the fact that uh, that the camaraderie that we need, we sometimes find it in toxic ways. We're sometimes, it's sometimes about who we commit crime with. It's sometimes about who we make secrets with, who we struggle with, you know, like, and so all of that stuff is, is, uh, it's easy. But the hard thing is to, is to really litigate what it is that we need from each other as a community. 
What is it that we need from each other just in the daily, every day? And I think one thing that's great about my crew is this, as we've grown up, our relationship has evolved to the point to where I can just call these guys and be like, yo, man, what's up with you? You good? How the kids? Are you still friends with Ryan? I'm still friends with Ryan. Shout out to Ryan. Ryan's like a whole character in the book. I was like, I'm going to meet Ryan. Um, go ahead. What are you going to say? I'm saying he's, I met him, the, I met him in first grade. Shout out to Ryan. That's, Shout out to Fred. Yeah, that's my man. Um, mm. One of the things you also talk about that I didn't know, I'm going through my notes, but you talk about the, um, it's when you gave the gun to Nick. Yes. Oh, page 94. My therapist convinced me to turn over all the shotgun ammo I own to my friend and business partner, Nick. So vulnerable moment. Uh-huh. Would, love to, would love to for you to walk us through that. But also, I think more importantly in this moment, how do you think back on that? And there are probably other listeners who have dealt with depression or dealing with depression who have thoughts similar to the thoughts that you had in that moment and are looking for advice or interested in in hearing like what recovery looks like in, from moments like that. And I'd love to I'd love to hear your thoughts. So like I'm laying in bed, like I said in the book, and I'm like, yo, I can't sleep. Like I'm never gonna be normal again, which is a a common refrain for anyone that's that deals with depression or deals with any type of disorder. It's like, it's not even what you're going through right now is that you don't see a time where you won't be dealing with it. You're so low. You're so wrapped up in it. You're so consumed by it that you think, how could I possibly ever get to a point to I just wake up and go for a walk, go for a jog, come home and watch the game again. And you're just like, oh man, I had it so good in 2017 when I was just chilling. You know, uh, and so that's the point that you think, well, what's the, well, what's the purpose then? If every day is going to be torture, if every day is going to be depression, if it's, I mean, there was a, there was a point where I would just wake up and cry until one o'clock, like just literally to my eyes were red and puffy, just wake up and cry till one until the morning anxiety had kind of like washed away. I have a little bit of a weird thing uh, in the middle of the day. And then by the end of the day, I feel normal again, kind of. So I talked to my therapist. So, so I'm sitting there, I'm looking at the gun. I'm like, be very easy. Shelling the gun, boom, it's over. And I had that actual thought and I sat up and I kind of like, I was like, wow. I just had a real deal 24 karat gold ideation. Not in a, oh, why do people do that type of situation? Just like a, I just contemplated whether or not I would be better off doing that. And the first thing that happened to me because of the foundation I'd already built was I have to talk to somebody about this, which I think is very important. That's why therapy, even well therapy, when you're doing okay, is very important because you make it a habit of discussing things like that with people. So the first thing I thought, which is not for a lot of people who have maybe been in therapy before, don't really have the access to it, which is something in our communities that we have to do a better job of. The first thing I thought is, let me talk to somebody. So I talked to my therapist, Coley, and she goes, okay. She goes, no big deal. But so we start talking about it. She goes, okay, no big deal. You're here talking to me. So you've made the first decision. You've made the first decision to live and you've made the first decision to discuss it. But she's like, I need you to make another one for me. She said, take all your ammunition, give it to somebody that you trust. Nick May is a guy that if you are in trouble in Los Angeles, you can call Nick. No matter what it is. If you're in trouble in Los Angeles, you can call Nick. Like if you if, if I'm in Lamert 
or if I'm on the west side and I got a problem with the Crips, like I'm gonna be like, hey Nick, you know somebody who can come get me out of this? Like, and and, and Nick is gonna be able to make Shout that happen. Shout out to Nick. Me. Shout out to Nick. So I'm like, all right, I'll send it over to Nick. So I was like, I said, Nick, yo, he's like, what's up, bro? I'm bringing 300 rounds of shotgun ammunition to your crib. And he was like, all right. So you don't want to know why? He's like, nah, I mean, you need to, I mean, you need to put it over here. Okay, come put it over here. It's not illegal stuff, right? I'm like, nah, all right, okay. I'll take the the boxes, the little canisters of shotgun ammunition. I bring it over to Nick. And he looks at me, he goes, you all right? I go, I think I am. So I call Coley back. She's like, is it done? I'm like, yeah. She's like, okay, let me tell you why therapeutically that's important. She's like, you've made a decision to take care of yourself. You're not, you're still, you still have depression and we still need to come together with a clinical plan for you, but you've made a decision to take care of yourself. And I think for people out there that are dealing with it, it's the hardest thing to convince somebody when they're going through it is that you can be okay. Like you will be okay. Like you will. You just have to attack it like you would attack anything else. Attack it like you're attacking that deadline at work. Attack it like you're attacking wearing your mask. Attack it like you're attacking anything else. You will be okay. You will come out of it. And um, you just have to find your network. But so for me, I think it was lucky for me that I had I was doing some things before that that allowed me to kind of deal with it. I want to ask you too about um, about love, and it's so funny. I do. <laughs> you're like I always sound so cheery. Um, that's funny, but love becomes such a through line to me in the book. Both, what does it mean to love oneself? Uh, your parents are are big parts of this, and your mother and father, and the way they loved you, or the way that you thought about their love, um, and then the love of your friends that helped you see yourself differently in the world around you. And I and I'd um I I want to hear you talk about how you think about uh how you grew in thinking about what love is, like self-love, community love, all those things, like as you both wrote the book and as you grew up. Uh to me, growing up love was simply like a it was obligation. Love meant that you did things for people. Because we always needed each other, right? Like, we were, I remember one time we were starving, but for whatever reason, like, it got to the point in the 80s where the economy was so bad that we had to, like, literally, like, fish to live. <laughs> like, we would, uh, like, we would, uh, like, we, we didn't have no bread. Like, we was, like, no bread. And so what we would go do is dig worms. And then you dig the worms, you take the worms over to Ramy, which is where you could fish. You fish, you catch your dinner. So you could feed four people essentially for like 10 or 15 bucks because all you needed was some cornmeal or whatever you fish, you fry up some fish and fish fries, whatever. But like if the fish weren't biting, like we weren't really eating and we had to go to my Auntie Eula May to get like two chickens to get us through a week. My mama made the chickens to get us through the week. I was just thinking love is what people did for you when you needed them. And it was, it was like the fact that we were all kind of living through this love was what made us stick together. It was love and family. As I grew older, uh, I started to learn a couple of more things. I remember one time I didn't want to clean my room up, and my pops goes, uh, "He's like, that's the way you show your mama that you love her." So how do you mean? She's like, "Your mom, when your mama come home, or she ain't here working, she like to look around and see her house with some sort of uh, balance and structure to it." 
And if you if you love your mama, you got to make sure that you create an environment for her where she feels comfortable and she knows that you care about if she feels comfortable. So love became an action then. And the more I grew up, self-love is the one thing that was always the hardest for me because sometimes I would look, I'd be like, what's there to love? I re- sometimes I really felt like that. Sometimes I would look at myself and you know, you're 370 pounds. You know, you're not working. Um, you got, you're having anxiety attacks every week. People got to come out to the hospital. You're a drain on everyone. Like, what's the love? Like, what's the thing? Uh, and so I think as I've gotten older, I've, I've understood that, um, that like loving love is to me, it's acceptance and grace. It's like who you share grace with, who you share vulnerability with, and who you share growth with. And that's been very tough for me to come to come to terms with. It's been very tough to come to terms with. It's like why I see so many people out there on the front lines doing things when all they get is crap about it. You know, I'm talking about you. And like, 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 it's like why I see so many people giving their lives to things when a lot of times people, they don't, people excoriate them for it. And it's because they love the people that they're out there for. They love them. They're willing to sacrifice for them. They're willing to show grace to even the ones of them that don't understand what it is that they're doing. And as stupid as it is, it's literally the only thing that we have. As human beings, it's like the only thing that makes you want to build community, the only thing that makes you want to make connections. Like you have to try to to show that to one another. And uh, it took me 42 years to like love myself, to really love myself. Uh, it's a, it's taken this much time for me to be like, hey man, you're okay. You, you're, you're good. There are things about you that you want to change, but there are things about you that are special. And I think for black boys, period, it's just imperative that we teach them to understand that within them. Because if not, they'll be loved for how they rap, how they dance, how they shoot a basketball, uh, how they have sex, their abs, all of those things. But what about themselves, you know what I mean, um, is, is valuable and worth it. And so I have to teach black boys how to love who they are, how to look in the mirror and understand who they are. Uh, to, and that, you know, that to me, that will build a, a better community around us, you know? You know, I, what I, one of the things I love about the book is that it really is a journey. And it's like, we like see you, you like grow and we see you struggle and we see all the things. And I'm, I'm hopeful that as you all read it, you get to be on the journey too and, and learn from it. There are two questions that we ask everybody. Van, the first is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years uh, that has stuck with you? Huh. <laughs> my mother. So one time I go to my mother and I say, hey, I want to be able to hold a grudge better. It's like, I can't hold a grudge. Like, I fall out with somebody. <laughs> we let it burn two weeks later. You call me up. You can call me up and act like nothing happened. I'm going to be okay with it. I mean, be like, <laughs> be like a higher cool man. Uh, I'm, I'm, I was hit my mother up, and um, I go, Mom, I, I need to be able. I'm like, I'm out here in this town, and people do you wrong. And I'd be like, Man, Charlemagne is so good at holding a grudge. It's like, I, I'm like, I need to be able, I need, I need to be able to hold a grudge better. 
And my mother said, don't hold a grudge, hold your light. I'm like, man, that sounds like some black mama mumbo jumbo. And she said, she's like, no, she's like, don't hold a grudge, hold your light. Whatever you think makes you, you hold on to it, grow around it. Don't dissect it and rip it to shreds, like grow around it. She said, okay, you can't hold a grudge. Okay. What does that mean for you? Well, like, what does that mean? How does that affect your life? She's like, hold on to that, but understand what it means to you. Like, don't change yourself, change around yourself. And I've tried to do that. Sometimes I fail. A lot of times I fail. I mean, most of the time I fail. But when I get it right, yeah, (laughs) when I get it right, it works, you know? She said, hold your light, baby. Hold your light. (laughs) Don't hold that dark. I'm to your mom on this one. She said, don't hold the darkness. Don't try to hold a grudge. You got to hold your gifts, baby. Hold your, I can see, I can see mom saying it now. I love it. Hold your light. I like that. Um, And the second question is, what do you say to people who, uh, who have done all the things? They read your book, read my book, listened to your podcast, listened to mine. They watched the news. They stood in the street. They called the people. They voted. And the world hasn't changed uh, in the way that they wanted to. What do you say to those people? What a fantastic question. I say I'm right there with you. And the real thing that I'd say to them, and it's going to be of no consolation to them, is truly the only thing that we have is each other. We're trying to do all of these things to make a better world. But inside of those things, the only thing that we really have is each other. I look at the women that I share my community with, and I watch the anguish, the anguish that they've been going through surrounding Roe, Dobbs, and everything that happened. You know what I mean? The only thing I can do is make myself available to them, is lend them strength. The same way they lent me strength when we all watched Mike Brown, when we all when we all went through all of this stuff together, the same way they were there, the same way they're there every single time. It's like, the only thing I can do is show up for them. So we can't put our our trust and our faith in systems. We can't put our trust and our faith in even words, but we have to find a way to put our trust and our faith in each other. And that's sometimes not about the Supreme Court. That's sometimes not about President Biden or what he is or is not doing or how he's reading the teleprompter this week. Sometimes that has to be just about how we show up for each other. So I actually think that we talk about large communities. That's very important. But I want to build small ones. I saw this one thing about this black couple. I don't know if you saw this. And they all moved in the same cul-de-sac. And they stayed there for like 20 years. And they all know each other. And they got like kids. It's like four families. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about not so much will you go out to vote for me. I'm talking about can I borrow some sugar? That's the culture I want to get back to. And so everything that we're doing out there is very important. But the hope that we have, we have to make a smaller hope. I have to be able to, like, I know I can trust you, right? And that has to get me through. And we build those little links and connections and chains of strength. And maybe the next time, the decisions that affect our lives will be a little bit different. But we can't stop. Van, where can people go to stay up to date with what you're doing in the world, to follow you, to make sure they catch the next book? Uh, How do people... Keep tabs on your world. I'm everywhere. At Van Lathan on Instagram, uh, on Twitter. Also, we have a new show that we just did. 
uh, is for 50 Cent, Mona Scott Young. It's called Hip Hop Homicides. It's coming out in September. The Ringer Podcast Network. I do higher learning with Rachel Lindsay and myself. If you're into Marvel stuff and you want to talk about nerds, just get your mind off all of this stuff. The Ringerverse podcast is, is there too. There's so much stuff going on. We have a new movie that we're starting to do that'll be out next year. Shout out to okay, all movie. My- Yo, shout out to my partners, Trayvon Free and um and Nick May from Six Feet Over Productions. There's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, but everybody, last thing I'll say is take breaks. I woke up this morning, and the first thing that was in my ear was listening to Steve Bannon. I can we can't do that. Like, so, like you feel like listening to Steve Bannon talk about the insurrection. I'm like, did we get them yet? Everybody make sure you take some breaks. And I hope that my book can provide you a little break from all of this stuff. Boom. Well, then we consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Absolutely. Thank you, Dore. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Veronica Simonetti and executive produced by me. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.